This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer a Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer a Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hey guys, it's Mike. As you know, I adopted my pup Rocky from a local rescue. Now, when people ask me what kind of dog Rocky was, I was always stumped. I used an Embark Dog DNA test to decode my most puzzling questions about Rocky. You can also learn about your dog's inner secrets with Embark, the highest rated dog DNA test. Unlock over 350 breeds and screen for over 200 genetic health risks. Save $50 on a breed and health kit with promo code KIT at EmbarkVet.com. Again, that's promo code KIT. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. All right, 15 weeks in the books, and the Ravens are still in the playoff hunt. It's film study with Ken McCusick, so let's get it started with Ken. Ken, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing well, and I'm excited that it's not just you and I this week, that we've got Dev back after lots of great feedback from his first visit. Dev, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad it was good feedback. I thought it might have been the opposite. <laughs> I think that's already had me planned out, and I didn't uh... You know, I was that guy coming to the party that couldn't say, like, go away. No, the, 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 right. Despite the technical difficulties we had on that episode, it seems <laughs> that the listeners uh, really enjoyed your insight. And uh, we're really excited to have you back. You and you and Ken are uh, just look at this game so much differently with your battle plans, getting ready for the game. And Ken looking back at how the Ravens performed and basically how they played out with those battle plans that it's great to have the two of you together yeah no absolutely uh yeah it was a lot of fun the first time and i'm glad to be back again very interesting game 
to discuss. On the surface, you might not think that way because it's a win, you know, it's against a winless Cleveland game uh, team. But you know, just I thought there's a lot of things from that Steelers game to analyze in a carryover effect to this game. So. Right. Uh, this is going to be a fun show well, and that's, to that, talk about. And that's the funny thing is the fact that we're going to analyze us playing against the Browns and go into real detail <laughs> when Sunday yes. when Sunday night there was a really exciting end to the Steeler-Patriots game and, a, and an exciting end to this, uh, the other Sunday night game. And we're going to talk about the Ravens beating the Browns. <laughs> you know, I hardly ever watch the 4 p.m. or 8 p.m. games on Sunday if the Ravens play at 1. We're deep in our analysis by then, and, and uh, honestly, I usually miss those games. But I did happen to catch the, the last play of the Steelers game, you know, the, 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 the pivotal That's all play. you needed. And, yep. <laughs> uh, all right. What are your guys' thoughts real quick on that? Did you, did you, it's, it's the rule. Where do you fall on that? It's the it, rule, yeah. It's the rule. No one likes it, but it's the rule. We're used to I, it, right? I, yeah, I'd, I'd like to, them to get to a point where they can call it electronically so they don't have to blame the impact on human hands somehow. So they can they can just, you know, there's there's a electronic thing in the ball or whatever that judges stabilization or judges where the ball is. And I don't know if technologically, if, it, if we're there, that we can do it. We can, certainly could do it in terms of crossing a line, Josh, and we've had that conversation before. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what constitutes a catch, if they, there's a certain amount of time of stabilized control or whatever that they could judge. You know what I want? If we're gonna if we're gonna change this a little bit, I like there's one thing that baseball does that I like with how they handle the replay, that it's not the guys in the stadium that make the decision. That's right. That it's one booth mm-hmm. in New York City that makes the decision for all the games that day. I like the idea of one ref crew in uh, home base that any of these controversy plays, they quickly have all the camera angles and can make a decision as a team there and not put the pressure on the guys on the field. I, I thought they did switch to that this year. Like, I don't think the guy is making a decision under a hood anymore. He's looking at a Surface tablet. There's, as oh, they're going back to New York. They Sorry. are going back to New York, but I don't know if there's more to that process. Uh, I, I don't know if there's something involved that's not making it a seamless process. I see. Uh, but but my two cents on the play is that the, the ball moved. <laughs> I understand. I mean, right. A rule is a rule. That, that's part of the – yeah. So So – yeah, I agree. Like the rule stinks, but the ball move—it was pretty clear. I don't think there's any ambiguity on that part, and they had two two other plays to still get it done. They couldn't get it done. So, well, what so. about the other controversy play from yesterday? The fumble into the end zone is a touchback. That's again, right. if the rule is the rule. Do we need to reevaluate that as the NFL? Yeah, it seems, which, it seems like sorry, which game was that in? I, I, I must have missed it here. We're, we're not talking about the Ravens uh, recovering the, the no. fumble in the end zone. We're talking about a different one. It's fumbled through the end zone? Right, through the end zone. So Derek okay. Carr, uh, for, the, for the Raiders, fumbled mm-hmm. the ball in an attempt to score a touchdown. Out of the end zone, the Cowboys ended up getting a touchback. Okay. And Sealed that was at the end of the game. Yeah, that, that end of the game, essentially. That, yeah. That's that's been the rule for a long time in right. terms of fumbling the ball into the other end zone. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it is what it is. Then, I, I'm really okay with that one. You know what? There's another controversial call in the in the Kansas City game. Yeah, that's the where Chargers. They, that's where they brought out the piece of paper, right? Or or a card or something to judge. The one I'm thinking about is a catch in the end zone where the ball was basically controlled through contact with the ground. Didn't look like it moved at all to me, but it was called a. A uh, not a catch on the field, and they they allowed it to stand as not a catch. It would have been a big touchdown for the Chiefs at that point, 
Chiefs went on to win fairly easily, but but that would have that would have been a very costly play for the Ravens. Uh, okay, I was talking about yesterday when the uh, Cowboys had a first down, or they had to bring out a piece of paper to measure whether or not the Cowboys had yes. the first down. Huh. I know. So, I missed that. Wow. Yeah. This is a, all this exciting <laughs> other game action that yeah. I missed in the NFL this week. But we're here to talk about the Browns and the, the Ravens beat, going in. And we should be happy about this win, even though it was expected. Um, it would have been really bad if we lost to the Browns. So we got to walk away happy with the way this game turned out, right? Sure. I mean, hey, we, uh, a win is a win. It was a, is a very convincing win against the Browns. Much more convincing, in my opinion, than even the score indicates. And it's the kind of win you walk away from very satisfied. The only issues coming out of this game are, are the two or perhaps three injuries coming out. And we've heard good things about Macklin and about Carl Davis today, that neither of their injuries are season-ending. The, the one I didn't see anything about was Anthony Levine, who hobbled off after the last defensive play on one foot. And I don't know if you guys saw that, but he hopped off the field on one foot, and it looked like, you know, to me it looked like possible Achilles or something, although that's not usually something you can hop your way off the field on. But, uh, but it looked bad. Yeah, I, I haven't had a chance to catch up in terms of what what the prognosis is as of tonight. But if we haven't heard anything yet, I think that's a positive, actually. Yes. Because you would have heard something if it was that serious at this point. And agreed on the Macklin injury, it seems like uh, there's a decent chance he may end up missing the last two games of the season. I'm just speculating. The thing with Macklin that's frustrating is he can't st- – he, he's now – fallen into that bucket that, that we, we thought about before he was signed here, right? Which is he gets nicked up, he misses time, he gets consistently misses one, two games, uh, nothing too serious, but you just can't. Uh, and I don't want to question his toughness. I don't want to question his ability to play through this stuff because that that actually looked like a legitimate injury and it looked like a, a pretty tough hit to me, but you just wonder. Uh, you know, a guy like Steve Smith, for the sake of it, it's the extreme comparison. He's out there. He's going to play through a playoff push. So I, I, it's going to be interesting to see if he misses these games to end season or if he's able to, you know, at least play through one game. Well, at least we got Perriman. <laughs> Josh <laughs> hates Perriman. That's something you kind of just get uh, hey, it Don't act it like it's just me. I'm pretty sure most of Baltimore hates Perriman. <laughs> he's getting closer to uh, DeAndre Hopkins, right, on that uh, catch he had. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so how does Ken? Last week we did a uh, forty-five, fifty minutes on these tiebreaker scenarios. So now we're not. A lot of football games happen this weekend. How do the Ravens stand now? It got much simpler, much, much simpler with all the good things that happened. Basically, for the Ravens, their own win, the Chiefs winning, and eliminating all the AFC West teams from any kind of tiebreaker and consideration. So now there's only three ways that the Ravens can get in the playoffs at nine and seven or better. It is there's a very remote chance they can get in at eight and eight, but it's it's so remote as to be not even mentionable. So they can win both their games. That's the easy one. And that's they're playing two easy games. There's maybe a sixty percent chance that they can do that. If they don't get that done, plan B is win one game and have Buffalo lose to Miami in week seventeen which is, by the way, anything that depends on a Week 17 other team result is a lousy plan B. Or the other plan B is to have Tennessee lose both of their games. So they can get in 
they can do any of those three as long as they can as long as they finish nine and seven on the on the second two or they or if they win both they can get in by any of those three means all right so so we're not locking anything down next week so we're not locking anything down but i would be making your travel plans for the playoffs now you want to you want to in terms of your ability to beat the traffic and the economic value of this jump right on your 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 trip to kansas city now and also buy a trip to uh um, you know the other places we could be would be Jacksonville, Jacksonville. and if, particularly mm. if you can get a refund on those tickets, jump on it now because it's about an eighty-five percent chance of right. And those are those would be a sat- that would be a Saturday game, right? It probably will got- be a Saturday game wherever the Ravens play because okay. that's just the way it always is. Just yeah, the trends, right? But yeah, yeah no. And the interesting thing is Tennessee. I fully believe they're going to drop their next two games. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're just trending in the wrong direction, and offensively. They've hit uh, the bottom, and it's not to say they've been a powerhouse all season anyway. But you just look at their inability ability to run the ball consistently. That's what they've hung their hat on. Granted, it was a tough assignment. San Francisco's defense is getting better on the road. West Coast trip that was a tough place to play, but that's a mm-hmm. that's a that could be the nail in their coffin when you look at the next two matchups against the Rams and the Jags. And I understand that the Jacksonville game it's a division game that could go either way. Uh, I just look at Tennessee losing out here, and, and that's my. I mean, prediction. motivations motivations are everything in the, la- in the latter part of a season, particularly in week seventeen. And you'll notice the, the line will reflect that in week seventeen in terms of the whatever you look at, whether it's a, a, a points or a win probability or a money line, and you'll see big, sharp divisions in terms of the increased chance to win. So if the Ravens go in needing to win that week seventeen game against Cincinnati, they'll have much more than the normal home spread you'd expect against Cincinnati. Same thing uh, for Jacksonville if they need that game, as I expect them to, to maintain their seeding or even improve it. So uh, Jacksonville will be highly motivated. Tennessee may also be motivated and be playing at home, and that'll be good. But, uh, yeah, they really are on their last legs right now. All right. Well, that, that's all exciting for the Ravens. Um, as, our, as our chances increase and as that, that little $20 bet I made starts looking better and better for the Ravens to win the Super Bowl. Why don't we value that at the end of the show, Josh? Okay. All right. I don't know how all that works, but you can tell me what it's worth now. And, again, I'll offer it to you at that price. Um, (laughs) And it's worth 50 cents. I'll take it. Right. Exactly. Uh, Let's get to the Browns game, and let's start with the the pass rush because there's lots of parts where we can look at this and look at how the defense – we're going to break down the defense. So we've got to look at how the defense performed after really struggling with the Steelers the week before. So let's start Mm -hmm. with the pass rush. Okay, so just to give us some background information. So Kaiser dropped back 39 times that resulted in a pass or a sack, and only 13 of those were ample time and space. He had a couple other plays where he was flushed out of the pocket and forced to run, which are not included in there. There actually were cases where the pass rush did a good job. Now against the Steelers, when we divided ours out, remember the Ravens got uh, pressure, not the Ravens get pressure, the Ravens denied ample time and space on about half the throws, which is okay, but they had most of those were ball out quicks. And in this case, only seven of them were ball out quick, and 19 of them were generated pressure events by the Ravens out of 39 times dropping back. So it's very good, very high rate of pressure. It's reflecting the Browns' average of three and a half yards per play. They only had 136 net yards on 39 plays. Kaiser, of course, you've probably seen it, had a rating of 41 in the game. Uh, they neutralized Josh Gordon in the game very effectively 11 targets for 47 yards. What did you think about that, Deb? That was uh, that was the part that really stood out to me, that jumped out to me. 
that was one of the biggest keys coming into the game. It's it wasn't a um, it, it wasn't like a surprising key or anything. I, I think everybody understood that they needed to, to be able to control Josh Gordon to have a chance to win in this game. He's the type of guy that can go for a buck fifty and two touchdowns. He's got that type of talent, and they didn't they didn't take him lightly. And I think you know we talked about uh, the Steelers game before the show. I, I mean, just in terms of our prep, but that Steelers game I think definitely had a carryover effect to this game in terms of some things, some of the things Dean Pease has done, it did, did in the Browns game that I, you know, I don't think I've seen him do in combination in a single game against a single opponent. Uh, he really made a concentrated effort in containing Josh Gordon with double teams, with double coverage, uh, Brandon Carr playing off coverage at times, giving him enough of a cushion. So when he had those third and twenties, which they had on the one play, uh, it was, I think a pass defense for, for Card Weddle, it was, a, I think it was a third and 15 or third and 20, but, but Brandon Carr giving, uh, you know, a lot of cushion so he could catch up with Gordon because Humphrey has that catch up speed that Gordon, uh, that Carr just doesn't. So mm-hmm. they really did a nice job technique wise and scheme wise, um, you know, in terms of uh, really targeting Gordon and making sure he was taken out of the game. And, and that, and then no, none of the other Browns receivers really made a dent, right? Like Coleman didn't make a dent in this game. Uh, Duke Johnson, made a couple of plays. He had the fumble, of course, but ultimately to your point with Kaiser, I mean, the pressure was there and I, I agree with you, but I also think with Kaiser, you know, the, the amount of times they targeted Gordon in this game for them to get no return on it, it makes an impact too on the quarterback and where's he going to go, go with the football next, right? Like who's he going to target? So that, that also came into play. And, and in that's, this game. and that's my question for you is for Raven fans, it was a big impact because we were so frustrated with Antonio Brown the week before. But it is that it is Kaiser and not Ben Roethlisberger throwing the ball. How much of a difference should we still be take the same positivity, or was it that we did this coverage and it's because Kaiser couldn't pick it apart? Well, I, I'll start with that. I think that it really is a combination of factors. I that the P's had just an outstanding pass rush scheme, and we can talk about that a little bit more when we're done with Gordon. I think here, but just to speak to to some of Deb's points about about how Gordon was taken care of. What the Ravens didn't do is get away from their basic game plan. They didn't move Humphrey switching sides to cover Gordon. They were, they were comfortable with Humphrey staying the same side and, and having him matched up one-on-one with Coleman or whoever they ended up putting over on that side, which I thought mm-hmm. is probably the superior way to get that played. Now, I didn't really notice, and I haven't had a chance to look at the All-22 yet to see what they did with Weddle in terms of switching sides, but they had Jefferson more up in the box in this game. They, in fact, dropped Levine into deep coverage on a couple plays where he was in in the dime. So that's what I kind of wanted, wanted to know if you'd seen some of, scheme-wise, what they had done with that. Yeah, so Weddle did switch sides a bit. You see him more often line up on uh, that left side in, in a, a deep safety role, but he did. He was also pivotal in terms of double covering Gordon. Um, I don't have the snap count in front of me. I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't log it snap to snap, but there was enough instances especially in third and obvious passing situations where Weddle shaded to Gordon's side. I mean, there was help over the top. And if that meant single covering the other guys, that, that was what they did. And it, and it worked. That, that was the key last week, I thought, against Brown. Is not Well, there were two keys. One was maybe you move Kennedy to the outside and see if he can do better on Brown than Carr could. 
but but the other one was the shade Weddle to Brown's side on every play. Yeah. And and they were they were getting caught a lot having Jefferson on the back end. I did notice one time in this game they had Jefferson on that side and in in a bracket coverage with Humphrey. This one time the Gordon seemed to burst way open, far wide open. He was 15 yards between the bracket, I'm going to say, but Gordon ran straight right through the route, and and uh, and Kaiser delivered the ball between the two players and didn't get the didn't get the turn from Gordon to see the football. Yeah, and the other thing, uh, getting back to Josh's point about Gordon, um, the Browns did make some adjustments in their route trees with with Gordon too. So he was in motion, uh, he ran some crosses, some shallow uh, some shallow crosses, and he was wide open on those plays. So right. Kaiser missed him couple of times because of the pass rush and because mm-hmm. his clock sped up so his accuracy on those were, were those throws were way too high the timing was off so it was a combination of factors but let's hope that this is the, the precedent for when the Ravens go up against these types of elite receivers going forward if you look back we we, we did the podcast and we dissected how they, they uh, matched up against Hopkins a lot of the same problems that they had against Brown which was that there was too much single coverage and not enough of a thought process to, we're going to just double team this guy. We're going to give him the Michael Jordan treatment. We're taking him out and you're going to beat us with somebody else. And I, it'll be interesting. Uh, next week's a good, a good example. Like T.Y. Hilton, what do you do with them? I mean, the Colts, do they have anybody else to threaten you? And if, if they don't, take him out of the game. Make him a non-factor. And that's what they did with Gordon in this game, essentially, aside from one jump ball catch against Kennedy, which... You know, at that point, like, uh, <laughs> for Kennedy, I mean, there's only so much you can do, which I thought that you're, you're going to give up a couple of those when he just, out, with his physical abilities, he just is able to uh, make make a play on the ball that your corners can't get to. Yeah, and I, the shallow cross was another interesting one because they had lots of opportunities to do that. They, they completed it once very successfully when Carr was in chase technique on a on a shallow cross and I was wondering why they didn't go back and try and do more of that but it was a it was a very good yeah. game very very good game plan by Pease got a lot of things done defensively he wanted to do and and you know frankly Kaiser was so confused and the line calls I think were so messed up in this game in terms of how much pressure there was it was very difficult for Kaiser to to, to find that timing anyway I, I want to go back to the pass rush for a second if we're good on that and, and talk a little bit about sure. the scheme here because one thing we saw is a lot of individual elements of deception that weren't necessarily grouped. Now, the reason I say this is I, I, I set aside four major elements of deception that go together. One is pre-stat movement, which we really didn't see too much of and never really have from Pease's defense. That was really more of a Rex Ryan thing. Individual blitzers is one. So that's players running, uh, uh, blitzing from off the line of scrimmage that don't give it away pre-snap at least a yard and a half off the line of scrimmage, or at least as far out as the slot receiver. Stunts, which we have not seen too much from Pease this year. We had 10 of those in the game yesterday, 10 individual stunts. And instances where the Ravens dropped two or more men from the line of scrimmage, and they consistently were showing that double-A gap look. Six at the line of scrimmage and dropping two, once three and once four from the line of scrimmage. So there are nine times where they did that. But what they didn't do is they managed not to sacrifice the back end, despite the fact that there was some element of deception they were throwing in on almost every play, and they didn't do a lot of grouped plays. Now, I need two of those to happen for me to uh, categorize a blitz as deceptive. So they can run two stunts on the same play, or they can have two separate blitzes on the same play, or they can have one stunt and one blitz, or they can have uh, two people dropping to coverage in one blitz. 
that all those all count as deceptive blitzes, but the Ravens only had five deceptive rushes in the entire game, yet there was still enough deception in their scheme to really keep Kaiser and the line very flustered. And I, I thought that was very significant. Pease didn't have to lick a lot of sacrifices on the back end, only rushed six men, did not run six men at all, rushed five or, or fewer every single snap the entire game. Yeah, and it's interesting because the Browns kind of catered to that too because they spread the they spread the ball out the entire game, and to the to the detriment of their run game, which we'll get into in a little while. But you know they really um, they played a wide open style of offense. Had Kaiser in the gun, spread the field, and this is the only way you're really going to be able to neutralize that type of an offense is with your front four and five rush. I mean you're going to be able to you're going to have to be able to get a rush going with that group or else you're in a lot of trouble. And that, and that, you know, that helps you in that case with your coverage and being able to double cover Gordon, it's a little bit easier, right? Cause you're still keeping your integrity and you're rushing four and you're keeping seven back. It's some combination. I know Mosley was very active um, as a blitz and a bluff guy. And so he was really the, the biggest, I think, uh, component of that front group of guys that kind of added to the rush. But otherwise to your point, uh, you're you're doing it mainly with your front four um, in nickel and dime and getting it. And I have the same, I kind of have the same observation. They really did a nice job of collapsing the pocket and, and rushing with just those numbers. And, and I think speeding up the clock for Kaiser at times and, and um, you know, really even when he escaped the pocket, like even when he was able to buy some time, it was, it wasn't a play where he was able to get anything out of it, really. Like, yeah, they, they had that. They yeah, had that police escaping. very well. Yeah, yeah, he's just he's just at that point. There wasn't. It wasn't a situation where you ever felt like the Ravens were in trouble when he, when he got out of the pocket. He was able to get some yards. He was able to scramble, but there was just nothing down the field. They still didn't give up their back end integrity on those coverages. So I, is this is this a straight response by Dean Pease to the struggles Sunday night? Or just next game up. This is how they fa- they lined up better against the Browns. Yeah, I think it's a little bit a little bit different situation with Kaiser because he was a running quarterback, and so what we're, what Dev was just talking about in terms of them not getting a big play. They didn't have a spy per se on on every play or anything, right. but they had they had very good ability with Levine in particular with Judon on one play that I'm thinking of that, that denied a third and thirteen for a seven yard run. Uh, of being able to get to the sideline and push Kaiser out of bounds mm-hmm. after a short gain. So even when he did get outside the pocket, which is your fear with a running quarterback, he's, he wasn't shredding us for 25 yards and you know running right up the middle of the field and doing it. Right. And then maybe that gets back to his inexperience, right? Because if you're dealing with, with Roethlisberger, when he escapes the pocket, you are dealing with that 25-yard completion down the field. That just wasn't happening. Now that's, that's again, it gets back to the fact that Kaiser just wasn't able – to, to maintain his composure and find those guys down the field that were uh, getting getting off of coverage, but I, I like I tend to think just looking at coverages cover shots that we were were able to see they they didn't um, lose their guys they 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 were able to, to mirror their guys um, they were they were good about maintaining their coverage throughout the progression of the play even when the play broke down. Gotcha. Now the Browns did put up 130 yards on the ground. Is that a concern? So I guess it's always a concern you gave up 130 yards. But if when you look at that, it really came down to one drive. They gave up 96 of their rushing yards, I believe, on one drive. It was a 59-yard run they gave up. 
that had was well blocked. We can talk about that for a minute. Isaiah Kroll ran the had the 59 yard run. Basically, it was run off tackle out of a six uh, lineman formation. So they brought on Reader or Writer. I'm not sure how you pronounce his game to play at left tight end. He had a key block on Mosley in level two. Uh, the rest they got a great double team on on uh, Brandon Williams at the point of attack to move him. Then Betonio slipped off him and got the block on Judon. The fullback took care of Suggs. So everybody just made their block right in space at, at the point of attack. And then uh, Crowell uh, rushed it right through the middle, got Weddle uncomfortable turning back and forth, and then uh, made a long gain out of it. And very fortunately, Carr tracked that play down. So, you know, obviously Carr has not been our favorite guy to talk about the last few weeks, but uh, he did a great job of running that play down, really had a good game himself. Uh, what I was really impressed with was that the Ravens came back from that drive. Five plays, 96 yards. They just failed to score at the goal line. They turned it around and they score seven on you, but no problem. Ravens went right back to business after losing only their third lead of the year and scored a touchdown going the other way. Yeah, I agree. That was, that was like a shocking thing for me to see them come right back and you know have a bounce back drive get the moment to get take control of the game again i think that actually was the controlling part of the game because if they don't bounce back on a drive like that and emphatically drive field on offense then you're looking at a game that's going to turn into something resembling the types of games they played in the past in these situations right like that game that drive was a separator drive in a lot of ways it got the control back on their side but it was the fact that the offense continue to kind of take the control back. We've seen that now. Saw that then in the Detroit game as well, right? Detroit was pressing on offense. They made a push. Right. The offense, they, they shut it down with touchdown drives, not just kick, kicking field goals. Uh, so, and it's interesting with that corral run, shades of last year, I, th- I thought that was the same exact play um, on the long run he had. In, in the in Cle- it was in Cleveland last year, right? First game. Yeah, it was eighty-five yard run. It was it was I think that was oh, yeah. the longest run against the Ravens in their history, or it might have been at the time. Uh, but but yeah, that was a uh, that was a big one. Um, I don't know if they had a six-man line on the field. That was the that's one of the things that is a is a little bit of a bugaboo in terms of of getting off the goal line with a six-man line is something. It just it's it it bothered me a little bit. They were able to do it so easily, but anyway anyway, the comeback was really the great thing. I did want to talk about one other running play in this game because the, the Browns only had something like 34 yards on all their other drives since they had five for 96, I think, on this right. drive. But they they had a, a third and nine situation at the key point in the game where, the, where they had a chance to get back in down 14. Uh, Kaiser threw an eight-yard pass to, against the dime on third and nine to stop him just short. And Carr flung his guy emphatically to the ground, reaches his fist up into the air, fourth down. The Browns immediately ran to the line of scrimmage to run a play. Well, the Ravens are in the dime defense at that point. The, the, the hallmark, of course, of the dime defense is you have six defensive backs on the field, and you, you're very undersized because you have only one defensive lineman, Willie Henry, on the field. And the Ravens were able to immediately get lined up appropriately, jam both A-gaps, and get over those, those each of those um, tackles and guards appropriately. So you have four guys between the tackles. And... They forced Kaiser to the outside, and the last big guy they had, who's Mosley, the fifth biggest guy on the field, by the way, that's not very big, uh, gets right up there and stuffs a very big man, Kaiser, and essentially folded him over so he couldn't make that first down. Very impressive play there to be able to stop a fourth-and-one run play with your dime defense. I totally agree with that. Yeah, I wonder if uh, part of it is 
also, I mean, this dive is becoming ingrained as a package that it's not just a package now, it's, it's turning into a defense that they're in a lot of the time. So that, you know, beyond that and just understanding the situation of, of the game, I think just um, a perfect example of, of um, you know, playing the game, the game situation perfectly too. But yeah, I agree. That was, that's always impressive when you're undermanned, when you have a smaller packet on, on the field, when you have more defensive backs on the field. Yeah. Yep. So 32 dime snaps in this game, only 26 snaps of other types. So 32 dime snaps. Uh, the, the Browns averaged 4.5 yards per play in those. They had one sack and three other turnovers on those 32 plays. So uh, very impressive dime play. We'll talk about Anthony Levine, I think, a little bit later. But uh, anyway, I wanted to point out those two rush plays, Josh. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's like you've been saying, I think you were saying all last year that they need to play more dime, and it seems the more they play the dime, the more success they're having with it. Sure has been the way. Just to, just to talk a little bit about the dime for the year now, they have, I will get to this really quickly, and I apologize, but I don't have to apologize to our sponsors because there are no sponsors currently for this. They, they have played 246 dime snaps so far uh, on the season out of 901 total snaps. So we're working on uh, you know up to, uh, upwards of 25% dime snaps now for the year, which is a vast departure from the 2.7% dime snaps of the first five P's years. Yeah, and it's, it's a welcome change. It's made a huge difference in this defense in terms of having sideline to sideline speed, in terms of having flexibility to cover the middle of the, the, middle of the field. Yeah. And then in terms of the run defense, too, let's uh, get back to that a little bit in the sense that, you know, with Anthony Levine, with Tony Jefferson, uh, you know, mixed in some Chuck Clark, these are guys that are basically tweeners. Um, and Levine's probably more of a safety in terms of his build and size, but the way he plays is not. I mean, he, he can mm-hmm. stick his nose in and he can take on blocks. He's a tough, he's a tough guy. So you're, you're, you're doing this with guys that are basically linebackers in this day and age in the NFL. You look at Dayon De- De- Buchanan in Arizona, right? I mean, a 220-pound linebacker that gives you speed, versatility. So in a sense, yeah, I mean, you do sacrifice a little bit against the run. Now you can play. That's why the Ravens were in such a – they were in such a tough spot last week against Bell because – you know, can you play dime consistently against a back like that? You're probably going to get shredded on the ground. But I think you pick your spots against the Browns team that Corral was running the ball well. I don't know why he didn't get the ball more. But, I mean, at the same rate, the Ravens, I think, just understood that Hugh Jackson just wasn't going to run the ball and, and, and try to run the ball and take advantage of this this, um, this coverage that the Ravens had out there, this defensive package that the Ravens had out there. So those are a couple other factors why – I think you can take some calculated risks with the diamond. Yeah, it, it, there, it's one of the things about it is it's very da- uh, it's very uh, down and distance dependent, of course, and that's what we think of the dime coming in and being a third and six, third and five play. But beyond that, it's very game situation dependent. So you always play dime at the end of a half when they're having a hurry-up drive. You can always play dime when the other team's down two touchdowns in really the third or fourth quarter. So that's what the Ravens did a lot in this game, and, and it's frankly a lot of what they did against Pittsburgh as well not effectively in terms of defending the pass with the dime against Pittsburgh, but very effectively in this game against Cleveland. All right. Uh, Let's take a look at uh, some individual players and how they performed. And I want to start on the linemen, and I want to start with Carl Davis because he went out with an injury. 
Yeah, well, that was a pretty serious injury. I, we, you know, Josh, we, Dev and I have talked about having a, a discussion of the inactives on a weekly basis just as soon as they're announced. But uh, they went again with five defensive linemen. It's not really five defensive linemen. It's really four because Patrick Ricard is one of those, and they're not really using him on defense anymore. They right. want to use he, him on offense. He's a fullback. He's a fullback and a, and a hell of a fullback, by the way. been playing great. But but Carl Davis was was one then of only the four defensive linemen they had, and he got hurt, and that means they're down to three. Well, that's a real problem. Henry, Pierce, and Williams had to then eat all the snaps the rest of the game. They were lucky. This was a short game in terms of it being only 58, and lucky is probably the wrong word for it. They were effective, so it was a short game of only 58 snaps. But Willie Henry in particular took a lot of the burden and was less effective because he couldn't be replaced uh, on a lot of these plays. Now, I'm not sure Carl Davis would have been the guy to do it, but it would have been nice if Willie Henry didn't have to play uh, you know, 12 and 13 snaps in a row as he did in, the, in, in both the first half and the second half um, because he's undoubtedly suffered as a pass rusher because of it. The tough part is, and they're also going to continue to face these uh, spread looks, so if you sacrifice having defensive line depth, they're going to wear down consistently week in and week out. It's it's not going to be as much of a rotation if teams are going to stay in that spread offense throughout and, and not mix it up as much. And we'll see to what extent Indy and, and Cincinnati do that. Um, both teams aren't really going to be – well, Indy, I think, is a better running team than, than Cincy is. I think they present more of a challenge. But, again, it, it's something to think about, too, with the, with the line depth going forward if they continue to make these guys inactive. Is, uh, is the types of offense they're what types of offensive approaches and uh, schemes they're facing on court? Well, I mean, I agree. The 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 nice thing about this game, the one thing that really helped them out was because they played so much dime and they were able to do so with having the lead against the Browns, and maybe that was even part of the expectation is that they might have uh, was that you get a lot of defensive line play effectively taken by Zadarius Smith, who lines up as an inside right. rush guy in the dime defense. So he played 42 snaps, and those are effectively snaps the defensive line does not have to play. He lined up a few times outside, but but including the time he got the sack, but most of the time he lines up inside. But it's still a risk, to your point. I mean, because you're accounting for those guys playing those line snaps, but it, effectively, if you have an injury to a guy like a Carl Davis, the other and the other team just decides, all right, we're going to just play in our base offense or even mm-hmm. in power formations, and we're just going to ram the ball down your throat. Right. But that's, that's the tough thing. Yeah, it, it, was, it was something. I'm not sure the Browns were in a position to do it in the game, but you're absolutely right. If they had decided that that was the thing to do, like Chicago did when the Ravens were mm-hmm. basically in this same situation, they could have really put them in a bad situation, one where they certainly would have at least had to bring out Ricard for some snaps. Yeah. So then how losing Carl Davis, how did that then – how did the rest of the linemen do? We don't need to go through all of them, but are there any key parts you pulled out from Henry, Pierce, or Williams and how they played? I think I just mentioned kind of my thoughts on Henry is that he was he was very fatigued as a pass rusher. His one quarterback hit was a roughing the passer. The only guy otherwise I want to point out, and you can talk about Brandon Williams if you want, Dev, but I'm going to talk about Michael Pierce. He had two tackles that would have been run stuffs um uh by the definition that football outsiders use in pff i'm not sure on their definition exactly but pierce had 21 snaps two good run stuffs but he made a great play uh to shut down a screen pass for njoku Mm -hmm. 
that was behind the line of scrimmage. It was right at the end of the third quarter, and he diagnosed it perfectly. And as soon as Kaiser had to drop that ball, Pierce's fist go right in the air saying, you know, he known he'd done it. He's very proud of his coverage. And I love it when I see that from defensive linemen, that kind of recognition to sniff out a good screen pass. It's very Ravens football. Yeah, no, that play definitely stood out to me too. It's so impressive the way they handled the screens in general. Um, but the, but especially for a nose tackle to do it. Um, but Brandon Williams, he had another solid game. I mean, again, the, the lack of the Browns committing to the run and, and the power run kind of, I think, it makes it hard to assess his game in a sense because a lot of it was geared towards them spreading the football out and trying to open things up that way. But, you know, again, he had the touchdown, of course. The one play that Carroll had, the run that he had, I mean, like you said, sometimes if – if a play's blocked up perfectly and it's call, it's the perfect call at the right time, you just can't – I mean, everything was everything was 100% on that play in terms of execution for the Browns. So uh, the, aside from that, I mean, it, it was kind of business as usual, I thought, from, from Brandon Williams. And uh, just going forward, his presence continues to loom large uh, going into the postseason. Yeah, I mean, they, they have nobody's been able to run the ball effectively until this game since that Minnesota game, which seems like a world away from where we are right now in terms of this Ravens team. They're, they're a different team than they were then. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about matchups going forward, and, and we, don't want to, we don't want to jinx things or anything like that, but if you're looking at the playoff <laughs> matchups going forward, um, if they do get a chance again against Jacksonville, I, I like their odds a lot better against the run-heavy team with a healthy Brandon Williams. That's the type of impact he can make, at least, right? So we know he can, what he can do, and like you said, they've been absolutely rock-solid since he's been back against the run, which is a which is a big difference than last year when he wore down at the end of the season and they got run on consistently. Right. Um, and uh, John Harbaugh today said that nothing serious showed up in the MRI with Carl Davis, but it's unlikely he plays on Saturday. So clearly they're looking at the schedule the same way we are and really want the health for when it really matters in the playoffs. It probably means Chris Wormley gets activated play defensive end they're going to depend on him a little bit in the run now Wormley's contribution so far this year and he has played a fair number of snaps on the year in in a couple games where he where he was in earlier I'll just give you a snap total for the year here he's at uh, 113 snaps already for the year 12 and a half percent of the team snaps for the season um, he, he's mostly a pass rush guy that's mostly where his contributions have been made so uh, we'll see what he can do against the run this time yeah no same uh, type of in terms of assessing him, he's his ability to take on blocks, his toughness, those are the areas um, that I want to see him improve in on. Uh, just, you know, there's a couple of times he got pancake when I've seen him have some snaps in the preseason and in the regular season. Um, you can only judge so much off of a few snaps, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a concern if you're going from him to Carl, Carl Davis in Wormley. That's a sizable difference. Again, again, uh, looking ahead to the Colts game for the sake of it with Gore, Mack, they can run the ball. So uh, that's going to be a good test, good litmus test for Wormley. It will be. It'll be. I don't think they're going to go to any uh, any kind of a difference in using Henry maybe in, on more of the running downs, which they could do. Henry might be more effective than him, but I'd hate to waste Henry like that when he's such a beast in the passing game. Uh, you know, it'd be much preferable if you can keep him rested for that. I don't think they're going to activate Kafusi from this based on what's happened in his apparent position in the Harbaugh kennel right now. But, uh, you know, Wormley would, would likely be the guy. He's not Brent Urban, but uh, but hopefully he can give us a little bit of 
a solid five tech play in the remaining games. Yeah. Um, let's get to the linebackers, and I know you're going to want to talk about Terrell Suggs because you always want to talk about Terrell Suggs, but we can't <laughs> skip over Matt Judon and C.J. Mosley because this whole linebacker crew had a great game yesterday. Well, I'm sure we can, we can each have a comment about somebody, but t- pick a player, Dev, talk about him, and then I'll talk about a different one. Oh, I want to talk about Judon. Uh, me too, <laughs> but go ahead. It's more fun. <laughs> what was he doing uh, in this game? He was... I think it was the the name of Dalius Thomas. You you brought it up. I, I saw in your notes, but uh, that was also brought up by a couple of a loyal Twitter uh, loyal Twitter followers. It astutely so, astutely so, because uh, he has been a revelation. Because here's a guy coming out of college, hand in the dirt, pass rusher. Really didn't expect anything out of him from a coverage standpoint. Now, all of a sudden, this guy is diagnosing plays. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a play on a, on, a, on, a, on a bootleg where, you know, he he backs off the cut block and just pounces right after that on Crowell in space. I mean, he finishes these tackles off, which is another big key, right? Like, he's not just getting there. He's finishing the plays off, mm-hmm. and he's wrapping up. So his coverage ability and his ability to just diagnose is – amazing for someone that has a developmental uh, i guess catch that he's had to have right then on against the run setting the edge he was very good at that and as a rusher uh, i thought bounced back you know had really good edge rush in this game was able to you know uh, was able to, to to get the edge set the edge in terms of the edge rush as well so he was tremendous. Uh, he was all over the field and, and his sideline to sideline pursuit you made you you mentioned the play on Kaiser um, just his his speed and space is something that is also jumped out. And I, I frankly, again, these are all things that I didn't expect to see. I thought going downhill, he's he's going to be a good player, right? Like his hands, his length, mm-hmm. kind of reminded me of a Seattle type of, of rusher or a Seattle type of lineman. Just that that type of a player can play inside and outside, but his ability to drop, stand up, and do all of these other things, it was all on display in that game against Cleveland. Yeah, it just some things that reminded me about Thomas so much. The wingspan, the ability to wrap up with the end of the wingspan have been very impressive. Get get your hand on a guy fully arm extended and still be able to drag him down without him getting away from you is a, is a big way. I mean, arm tackles get broken at that length a lot. You mentioned the speed going to the sideline to, to get down Kaiser. Kaiser's a fast guy. He just outran Suggs, no problem. He outran Zadarius Smith to the edge. Okay, I was kind of hoping Zadarius Smith would be able to get a good push on him, get out of bounds maybe. But the fact that from even, and it was even with him, Judon was able to run him down at the sideline. Very impressive speed in that game. I, I go back to Adelis Thomas on, on another note here. Adelis Thomas is a, is a cat of his own in terms of his own uh, value on the field. He allowed the 2005 Ravens to go play a three-defensive back system for several games when they really were out of defensive backs. They, they played mm-hmm. Deion Sanders at free safety, and they played two cornerbacks. And they had Bart Scott and Adelis Thomas on that team who could make up the other uh, coverage needs in their base defense. Very impressive. Thomas is a different cat. I don't mean to put that on Judon all at once, but, boy, right. what, a, what a game in this game. Yeah, and the thing with Adelis Thomas is uh, the learning curve that he had, right? I mean, he, that's a takeaway from AD. But you're talking about, and again, we're not saying he's there yet, but there's some traits. Uh, I think once he starts understanding the, 
what he sees, and he's already doing that. But once he once he understands and can play those different defenses, that that's a different level, right? Like being able to play those different roles, understanding what that involves, where he needs to be from a technique and positioning standpoint. That's when you might start to talk about him in Thomas's breath. But just right now, I mean, even his ability to rush the passer, that that speed rush that he brought yesterday, uh, was really impressive. Granted, against you know a depleted offensive offensive tackles of Cleveland, it doesn't matter to me when you when you look at what he's been able to bring the totality of his game all around. It's uh, it's all been it, it's he's exceeded expectations to me. Oh, but yeah, by far, by far. Well, let me talk a little bit about Suggs since we he, he deserves credit in this game. Suggs had a remarkable game as a pass rusher here, and I say that this was as weak a. A, a competition as you can come up with Suggs because Suggs is basically a guy who always plays on the side um, the, as the rush linebacker against just the tackle. The tight end is typically not on his side uh, unless they go in motion and they make changes, whatever. But Suggs is, is typically playing against only a tackle. And the two Cleveland tackles are not very good. They had Drango and Coleman in this game. Neither of them, certainly anybody who really should be starting in the NFL. Coleman may be more than Drango. Drango's in for Joe Thomas right now. That's not Drago, but, right, from Rocky, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> and it's not Durango either, and it's not Django. It's Drango. But but, but anyway, it, it, there was very little creativity of rush from Suggs, and there didn't need to be in this game. It's not like he's holding back on any pass rush moves or if, it, that he would even need to, but just every play against Drango in particular was a, a bull rush where he drove him right back towards the quarterback, and then he shed him at the last moment when it was convenient and got right in the quarterback's face. He did not have a sack in this game, but he created all sorts of havoc in that backfield. He set up the one sack that um, uh, Judan had, and uh, he was all over the field in terms of, of making interceptions occur and, and uh, sorry, incompletes occur, I should say, and otherwise being involved in the pressure that frustrated Kaiser so much. So uh, very great game from, from Suggs. Didn't have the huge impact on the run game, and, and you know Suggs was part of the problem on the edge, getting blocked by the fullback on the long run. But uh, but still, uh, just one of his best pass rush games in a very long time in this game. And, uh, and I liked it a lot. It's great to see Suggs do that. Yeah, and I thought Suggs' presence was also key, right? Like, I think Kaiser felt him a lot. And the same with Judon. Both of those guys had the, the speed rush, the edge rush going in a big way. That was uh, an instrumental part in Kaiser it's not always about speeding up the clock. Sometimes it's just feeling the rusher, right? Like you, you could feel Suggs' hand coming near you, and that just distorts you totally. And if oh, yeah. it happens one time, it's going to happen. It's going to be in Kaiser's head the entire time. And that's what Suggs brings as well. People know he's coming, and he's coming for that strip sack fumble. And inevitably, Zadari Smith was the guy that, that created that play, but Suggs is the guy that sets that up uh, from the blind side. So, I yeah, Suggs was, was terrific. I had the same observation along with Judon. Both of those guys, their edge uh, pressure was, was a big key in terms of the overall pressure. Yeah, thinking back now for a second, you mentioned the just getting a hand on the shoulder, but that was what happened on Weddle's interception, wasn't it? He just got a hand on Kaiser's shoulder, and then he, he kind of brushed by him, and then he released the ball maybe a little yeah. bit off time and high, and Weddle picked it off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was the play. There was another play too. I can't remember off the top where where it was, but it was Suggs and his presence again around Kaiser, just buzzing around Kaiser. And it's timing that throw that's thrown off at that point. 
because of you know you have timing based routes, you have the quarterback uh, having double clutch as you mentioned, but also again just getting in his head, he feels it, and because he feels it, he's not going to play with the same composure. If it's Brady, Brady could you know Brady also been done by but been done in by Suggs in that sense too, but a veteran quarterback might be right. able to push that off or brush that off a little bit easier. Yeah, Ben Ben keeps his eyes down the field better, and, and yeah, there would be other quarterbacks who'd be able to, to not be bothered by it, but I thought that was the beauty of P's scheme in this game, was that he created all sorts of distractions for Kaiser. But but Kaiser, but Kaiser did seem to really enjoy when he got in Suggs' way and blocked that interception that Suggs thought he had <laughs> yeah, on that boy. jump ball. You know, there's no restriction on Suggs at that point. If he sees Kaiser there, he can, he can bash him into Lake Erie if he wants to. Once that ball has been tipped, he's free to he's free to hammer him. So it's too bad that he didn't box out at least. I, yeah, I don't even know. If, I don't even know don't if he knew he, he was there. That, uh, I think he was totally fixated on the ball up in the air, <laughs> right. like a center fielder yeah. waiting to uh, catch the ball. It, it, you're right, but it was it was a it was a great play, wasn't it? Like just the the, the fact that the Ravens defense had a void Kaiser after it too. It's nice to see that. I mean that that look Kaiser's probably getting a lot a lot of grief today Monday morning quarterback style but I have respect for him for just hanging in and still making a play like that not, not totally losing his, his football savvy at that moment right he still made a play to, to, to avoid that turnover Right. We, we, you know, the guy we didn't mention was C.J. Mosley in this, and, and we got to take a, take a moment to talk about him, Josh. So let me, let me just jump in on this. That he was used all, in all sorts of different ways in this game, and all of them basically effectively. But he was the guy who rushed the passer, got his hands up high, and that was an impressive vertical leap from Mosley to make that deflection that Suggs should have had, <laughs> or could have had, yep. let's, let's at least say that. He was used as a, as a pass rusher on three different times. He got a quarterback hit. He got the pass deflected. He got a pressure on Weddle's interception. Uh, he had two passes defense in coverage. He made a number of run stops, but the big one being that fourth and one on Kaiser where he just folded him over short of the first down. We have not seen a great game like out of this like Mosley probably the entire year. Uh, but, but definitely not in the last few weeks when he's been hurt, in the last six or seven weeks at least. So I, I, I think of all the things that came out of this game, that's the thing that gives me the most hope that might carry over into the postseason and be a positive the Ravens can take with them. Right. You think that's a health thing, that he's finally I, healthy? I, I do. I think he's had so many banged-up neck issues and whatnot. But some of it is Ushin's thing, that, that Pease is using him in the pass rush more than he had been doing, and, and he was very effective. You mentioned the stunts earlier, and that's where... Mosley was a big contributor. He was the stunter on the inside in a number of those stunt uh, designs. So that's another area where he contributed. And if you play dime, it frees Mosley up. Be more involved as a rusher, as a lurk defender, too. I mean, I think there's a way to mitigate his lack of uh, you know, foot speed and his, his uh, I guess, dicey cover skills at times by keeping him in a lurk position where he can help out, where he can be, uh, you know, in that kind of that red dog position, read the block, and, and blitz accordingly. So there's some things you can do with him where you can keep him at the line of scrimmage. That's where he's he's better. Almost kind of like Donnell Ellerby to be more versatile. Ellerby could cover better, I think, than Mosley, but was a dynamo taking on blocks and blitzing. So that could really be his, his role going forward now, especially if you continue to play dime and it frees up mostly to do more things at the line of scrimmage yeah, yeah. so it, it gives you more options yeah that's that's exciting um
That's we talked a little bit about the coverage at the beginning near the beginning of the show. Uh, let's do the same thing we did with the linebackers. And if you each each one of you want to take a guy in the secondary to highlight uh, their play yesterday. All right, you go first again, Dev. I want to think about who I want. Oh, I know who I want. I'm going to go with Brandon Carr. Did I take your okay. guy? No, you did not. You're good. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Uh, I thought Carr had a much better game and really showed his value and just what he can bring to the table for this team. Like The matchup was better for him, bigger. Uh, you know, We talked about Gordon. Yes, Gordon has the speed. That's the disadvantage. But the size and the strength, that's the advantage for Carr. He could physically body up Gordon. He did it a couple times. And uh, I thought did a really good job as well, just, you know, uh, in terms of hanging you with some of those situations where Kaiser was scrambling. We saw the interception where he was, at, he was in the back of the end zone at the right time. So I thought he had a much better game. His technique was better. They used him better because that off coverage helped him, uh, I think. And, and with Carr, if, he, if he's able to pin his guy to the sideline with his length and his, his uh, physical ability, he's in good shape. It's just when he gives enough space, and and I think with that release at the line of scrimmage, when he can't catch up to certain receivers, that's when you're going to be in trouble. But that help coverage also was a key factor for him. But overall, he played a, a really good game, I thought. Yeah, could, couldn't agree more. Uh, and and he certainly stuck with it. The Ravens had six guys in the back of the end zone. Three, three triple covering one receiver on the left side and three triple covering Johnson, who was the intended target in the back of the end zone. Uh, it wasn't the most well-advised of throws, but there was no other chance at the, for the Browns at that point on fourth down, so it was what it was. Um, any, anyway, my guy I want to talk about is Levine today. 31 snaps a season high for him. All He was all over the field, had four tackles. They were for gains of 5, 5, 5, and 2. He had a pressure on a pass that eventually turned into a fumble. Jefferson pulled it free, and, uh, and he, Levine hustled back to the football, made that recovery, and, uh, and that was impressive. Uh, he, play after play, stopping a guy, tackling a guy after a short pass gain was impressive. And he also was really responsible for running Kaiser out of bounds uh, a number of times when he broke free of the pocket. So I love Levine's play in this game. In general, he's been a revelation this year, been a big playmaker for this team, and I hope they'll uh, continue to, to, to do it. And I, I'm glad they have a good backup in the role because I, he's the kind of player you would never want to lose the scheme because you lose the player. The Ravens are doing a great job with Dime. I want them to be able to plug in Clark and be able to go with that. Right. And, and neither of you even pointed out the fact that, that Weddle is now second in the NFL on interceptions. That's right. So, so he's got a guy, a guy who was frustrating at the beginning of the season has now stepped up and been all right. Yeah. They, I mean, there you go. He's really playing a lot better. Six picks. And Darius Slay has seven to lead the entire NFL. There's three guys in the AFC with six. Weddle is among the leaders there. So, uh, and Brandon Carr, by the way, is seventh in the whole NFL in interceptions. There's two guys with five, one guy with seven, and, and three with six. So, uh, Brandon Carr, right there, has had a has had a solid year. Right. Uh, yeah. And then and then Humphrey's the other guy who a rookie who is making his impact constantly. Yeah, so another great game from Humphrey. Um, he, he allowed that 16-yard completion right before halftime, and that was the only significant completion he allowed. That was one by Coleman right on the right sideline with 10 seconds left in the first half, and that set the, the Browns' field goal up. On the, very, on the previous play, he'd had a pass defense, and 
uh, he uh, he looked great to, uh, yesterday again. He he was up to the challenge of being on an island that entire game. All right. Um, I don't know if Dev has any, but let's get to the defensive MVP segment. Hey, guys. Can... And uh, as far as the MVP is concerned, I, I'd like to go back to Judon. Just, I think I outlined everything that he did beforehand, so I don't need to necessarily make my case again, but he's just all over the field, and, and made it, he took over that game. And he took over that game because, again, a lot of the stuff the Browns were trying to achieve was – through their screen games, they started off with those screens. It just didn't work. He shut it all down, and then from there, just he was in a groove and he felt it. And he's got some swag, uh, as, <laughs> as you can see with his uh, post um, post sacks celebrations and post big play celebrations. So that's my guy for the defensive MVP. All right, he's he's my number three star. I usually pick three devs, so I'm just going to go through these real quickly because I I know he's your number one guy, but. Uh, my number, my number two guy. All your reasons given are fine, and we've talked about my others. So I'm not going to belabor. But uh, Terrell Suggs, my number two, great game uh, of pass rush that I thought was central to disrupting Kaiser and keeping him off the spot, flustered, and uh, a big part of why he was so bad. Um, my number one is C.J. Mosley. Um, what his return means to the Ravens going down the stretch, if he can be anywhere near as effective as he was in this game. Uh, he could lead a deep playoff run with the kind of play he had in this game. Is back to the Mosley of old. I'll throw in an honorable mention, Marlon Humphrey. I don't know that he was an MVP of the game, but this was his first starting without Jimmy Smith opportunity, right? And he thought he acquitted himself really well, carried over the momentum from the Steelers game. If this is the way he's going to play, his timing, his anticipation, uh, it's it's not going to be a drop off to me, and and there's some gains with Humphrey over Jimmy Smith uh, as well. So there's oh, yeah. some there's some trade offs between the two, but there's going to be some gains when it comes to guys like T. Y. Hilton, for example. I, I can't wait to see that uh, uh, um, that matchup unfurl. So I, I, I want honorable mention with him as well. I, I think it's interesting. They still are ca- call him the rookie, Marlon Humphrey. Well, I know they do that usually for the entire first year that somebody's in the league because people are slow to pick up on who's good. But at this point, it's just an excuse to minimize what the guy is. He's got 435 NFL snaps at this point. He has played corner at a very, very high level. And he's one of the top 20 corners right now in the NFL, no doubt about it. Serious, sure, whether or not you think he's in the top five or the top 10, he's definitely a, a clear number one corner in the NFL right now. And uh, it, it's when you when you use the word rookie with him, you're just minimizing what he is in terms of his skills. Well, it's interesting too because Marshawn Lattimore deservedly so is getting all the publicity, but yeah, Marlon Humphrey's right next to him or right behind him, whichever way you want to look at it. The good, very good cornerback class that's 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 been as good as advertised. But you know, he's got all the physical skills and kind of some shades of Namdi Asabwa, not as long. But mm-hmm. just that athleticism, that speed, I think, and, and he's also then got that physical ability to, that Asamoah didn't have to come up right. and, and strike you and tap. He has, he has that. You know what I was really impressed by in this last game, too? And I know we, we, we're going way over here, but he's unbelievable make-up burst speed. So the play that really stood out to me was one where he had the PD, the second-to-last play offensively at the first half. He, he made an underneath cut. I think it was on Gordon as well. It might have been Coleman. Mm-hmm. But but he, he just had a burst of speed to get his arm out there underneath. It's normally almost impossible for a cornerback to keep up with that 
trail on a slant or on a on a hard crossing pattern there. But he he not only got underneath the ball, he also got his hand out and made the made the play. It just takes a lot of of true athleticism and speed to get that done. And and Humphrey had it in that play and uh, loved to see what he can do on a football field. And you guys you guys are both missing out on my MVP. Because you're once again forgetting about special teams and the difference that <laughs> yeah. Sam Cook makes with how with the uh, position in that he's given this defense to start each of these drives. Boy, he was great, wasn't he? He was the MVP of the game, Josh. Let's not get it twisted. We're talking about. This, I mean, no, I, I just I, I agree with you totally. He, uh, it was something to see. Just incredible, incredible performance, and just further, just absolute proof to anybody out there that doesn't believe special teams makes a difference in these games that are won and lost. It absolutely does. That was critical, what he did in terms of pinning the Browns back. You know, the other guy who doesn't get a lot of a lot of press is, is Chris Moore. You know, he downed three of those punts inside the five-yard line. He was right there to get it. And I know they were placed perfectly, and it wouldn't have been uh, – probably none of those would have rolled into the end zone. I'm not sure about that. But, but uh, Moore being right there on the place and been impressive. He's justified his fourth-round draft pick solely with what he's done on special teams. He's done a little bit, contributed a little bit on offense, but with what he's done on special teams, he'd have been worth the draft pick. Right? Yeah, Steve Tasker had phenomenal analysis, just to really quickly highlight this, that those gunners didn't get jammed by the Browns. Um, by the Browns, And that really played a part with the, with the Ravens gunners going down the field without an issue. And so uh, props to Steve Tasker, who is one of the best special teams. He's a Hall of Famer. Yes. He's not a Hall of Famer, but he should be special teams player uh so and, just wanted to point that one and, out and special teams has been the one department where it's been consistency all season yeah so yes totally yeah. all right uh again we're going long which we expected to go uh this week but let's get to a little bit of mailbag and this is uh if you go on twitter send in your questions with the hashtag film study mailbag for uh ken and then this week dev as well to answer so the first question up is from Mr. Ed. Which of the current inside linebackers needs to improve most at tackling? If possible, can you factor in special teams as well? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with that one, then you add whatever you like on this. I think Owasso had a great game of tackling in this one. Uh, he had seven tackles on only 26 defensive snaps to lead the team, so that was impressive. Uh, he, I, I do not know what Owasso's current role is on special teams. I haven't looked at his special teams responsibilities lately. I know Correa plays almost every snap now uh, on special teams, and that's probably the way they ought to do that. Um, what are your thoughts on the matter, Dave? Yeah, I agree. Owasso is the guy that I was thinking of. And same, I, I don't know special teams-wise what he's bringing to the table. There was a play in the game yesterday. He was juked out badly. I can't, uh, I can't exactly – I don't know who it was that juked him out on that play. I can't remember if it was a receiver or Duke Johnson. Um, he's just – he's slow to recognize, and then there's been some issues in just in terms of being able to tackle in space. He brings some good athleticism, but he uh, – yeah, in terms of the guys that need to work on, on their tackling, he's, he's probably target number one, I think. All right. Uh, Tony Thornton at DMV Traffic Guy asks, it looks like we have seen a significant difference in our run defense with Tony Jefferson staying up close to the line to help the run game while Weddle stays back as a free safety. Do you think DMPs will continue with this strategy going forward? 
Okay, well, there's, there's two ways in which I've seen this uh, implemented. So the first is the Ravens will often go to a six-man front with essentially two inside linebackers behind it, yet maintain four defensive backs on the field. The two inside linebackers then are Mosley and Jefferson standing side by side. So it gives them the ability to spread to six wide against the run when the other team shows a power formation. It's, it's very good against heavy formations as well, like the six-man line the, uh, the Browns faced in this game. The other thing that they're doing with Jefferson a lot is you're keeping up, up closer to the line of scrimmage and either rushing the passer more or occasionally just uh, covering a tight end or even jamming a tight end some uh, closer to the line of scrimmage and dropping Levine back into coverage as a, as a second cover two safety or just using one safety in the back end and, and using Jefferson close to the line of scrimmage. I like all of those because by far the weakest part of Jefferson's game is going to be playing on the back end. Yeah, you, you pretty much nailed it. I don't think there's anything much else to add uh, other than the fact that when you have Weddle playing center field, you can drop those guys in, into into the middle of the field, kind of creating some flood zones. And if that also, if, if that's also an effective way, I think, third downs to play the sticks. It gives you some speed. It gives you some versatility. So that's what Jefferson – so Jefferson inevit, inevitably is playing closer to the line, but he's taking away – the the first and second reads at times for these offenses when they need to convert like a third and seven or something. Um, so that's more important. That's it's a better place for him to be at in a kind of a joker role. All right. Uh, here's maybe a, a simpler question from Dust, at Dustin Cox. Who is better at generating the pass rush, Matt Judon or Zadarius Smith? Okay. Why, I, why don't we take this as a point counterpoint? All right. <laughs> Uh, I love Matt, Matt Judon, but I think he gets a lot of cleanup pressure. I think that Zadarius Smith is more of a pure pressure guy, and he's being asked essentially to play with three-quarters of an arm tied behind its back when he's asked to rush from the inside. It's not the easiest place for him to rush. He grew up, I'm sure, rushing on the outside all the time of, at some width and could be more effective from out there. And in this game, he finally had a sack, and he'd been having a lot of quarterback hits but not many sacks. But he finally had a sack and the and the strip when he did rush from the from the far left edge, meaning the, the offensive left side. So anyway, that that uh, that would be my argument for Zadarius Smith. But what he's added to the Ravens' pass rush in terms of critical mass from the inside, they couldn't do without. Yeah, I think Judon gives you more versatility. He can stand up. He can blitz. He can blitz from the inside in the stand up position. He can put his hand. He he can also rush from the inside with his hand down which is kind of the role that's gone as Darius Smith. But I, I think Judon gets it done from a lot of different angles. It's, it's, uh, it's a good problem to have <laughs> when you're talking about this, who's the better pass rusher, because they're starting to come together in a way that kind of reminds you a little bit of that 2014 group. I mean, not as prolific with Doomerville, with McPhee and Suggs, but just the versatility that the, all these guys can kind of bring and fill different roles. Because Suggs is already a guy that you can send on on stunts, and he can rush from the inside. So when you have three guys that can kind of wear all these different hats, that's very difficult for an offense to to uh, game plan against, and that's difficult for the quarterback from a pre-snap read to deal with as well. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. They don't have that Pernell McPhee rusher that they had in 2014. There's no one utterly dominant inside guy who, who automatically commands a double team and creates all kinds of problems on the inside, but... I, I like their current set of rushers a lot, too, and what they're able to accomplish. 
All right, I want to close up the mailbag with one last question from uh, Dan Anderson, who's asking, do you see any way we can employ Tim Williams and use his quick twitch for the quick sacks, or is he too much of a liability against the run? I, I mean, I think you, you always got room for a situational pass rusher, so there probably is some way they can use him. If they're going to use Williams, I don't want to see rotational play. I want to see situational play where he's in for two straight snaps, three straight snaps, but never more than that, and keep that high-energy pass rush. What we at times saw from McPhee during the 2014 playoff run and, uh, and what uh, he, he did there. I think McPhee also did some of that in the 2012 playoff run as well, if I recall mm-hmm. correctly. He did. Yeah, I think the problem, too, is back to what we were just talking about. Zadarius Smith, if he stays healthy, you've got Smith, you've got Judon, you've got Suggs, and then you need Willie Henry on the, on the field, right? So, And then what are you going to do with your linebacker position? So I don't know where – if Williams is a substitute, to your point, and for a series, that's all I can see coming from him right now to justify, I guess – to justify him getting on the field and not playing the run well and not bringing anything else to the table, he's going to maximize those snaps. He's not doing that. Um, when he's been on the field, even when he's rushed, the, the, he hasn't had that type of impact. I know that's a lot of pressure to put on a guy that essentially is out there for 12 snaps or so. I mean, it's it's a lot to ask of a guy like that. But that's basically what you're at, what you're looking at in order for them to justify him being on the field. That's kind of what comes into the decision-making process. I, I, I very much agree with that. So maybe that's something they work on in the offseason is figuring out whether or not there's some specialty role he can play, whether it's a, you know, a nine-tech, nine see what he can do in a lot of space against a, against a compromised, you know, out-on-an-island uh, offensive player, whether it's a tackle or a tight end or whatever it might be, or, or if there is some other way they can, they can make him more effective. But they've got a lot of options at those positions, and they're all effective. So when you have Judon, and yet we didn't even talk about Bowser, but he's been right. playing very well recently. I mean, it would be another player who, uh, you know, is, he would have to take snaps from in order to be on the field. So I don't disagree with the inactivation, and, and I, I thought it was okay this week, and I think it'll probably be okay next week if they do it again. All right, uh, keep sending in your questions on Twitter to the hashtag Film Study Mailbag. There's a few more in there that we'll get to on Wednesday, as well as uh, anything else that comes up in the next few days. Uh, this is a short week. The Ravens play on Saturday. So, Dev, tell us what you've got coming up on Battle Plans. Well, I, we mentioned some of the uh, the talking points that are going to come up against the Colts. Uh, short week, like you mentioned, so Battle Plans... Uh, We'll, we'll still get it out on Friday morning in all likelihood. Uh, you know, Brissett's an interesting quarterback. Uh, kind of has some of the skill sets that Kaiser does in terms of being able to cause some problems running the football, big arm, and, and, and really a lot more composure, I think, than Kaiser and, and better at reading coverages and being able to read what's going on pre-snap. But it's got to be a, a fun game to dissect, even though it doesn't look like it based on the records. Uh, because the Colts do still have some offensive capability in this game. Uh, so battle plans, uh, look out for it on Friday morning um, and in a short week. Um, you can also catch it again on Saturday morning as you're, you're getting ready for the game. All right, and that is on Russell Street Report, just like Film Study. Ken, what's up on Film Study? So uh, follow me on Twitter, at Film Study Ravens. On, uh, we've got Film Study on RSR, all kinds of stuff out there about the tiebreakers. The simplification of that, of course, I told you the whole thing at the top of the show, but if you want to see why teams are eliminated and whatnot, you can go out there and read that article. The article on the defense is out there. Lots of quarter and time references you can follow along 
in Game Pass, which is, of course, the intent of the film study articles in general, so that, that you will have that ability to kind of follow along with your Game Pass uh, system. And Josh, we, we, we haven't talked about your Super Bowl ticket or your show. Tell us what you want to talk about first. Uh, well, the Super Bowl ticket hopefully continues to gain value. Uh, there's a new episode of Section 336 that came out this evening, though, where we, uh, we talked a little Ravens, but we talked heavy on the Orioles and all of this Manny Machado uh, rumors and whether or not we think they're really going to trade him. Uh, the secret is we don't think that they're going to trade him, that it's all talk. Oh. And uh, <laughs> the fact that even if you trade him, it doesn't mean you're rebuilding. You're refocusing is all you're doing. So that's up on Section336.com if you want to check it out. Uh, great stuff. And, and honestly, the Machado situation is so depressing, it's hard for me to, to, to really just – Work through. Are you a big baseball fan, Dev? Not a big baseball fan. I keep up with it. My take on Machado is they're not going to trade him, and I think they'll they'll end up not resigning him either. So right. it's kind of be a yeah, nothing. Yeah. Right. My opinion but, is Angelos is going to blow it. Yeah. <laughs> Their chance to get a lot for him would have been last midseason. Right. So that was their one chance to trade high, and they 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 did not do that. So anyway. We are where we are right now, and, and I'm sure whatever they get from Machado, it's not going to be nearly as much as the Raven, as Orioles fans or Ravens fans, for that matter, think he's worth. Right, right. So, so your Super Bowl ticket? Uh, I mean, Super Bowl tickets, it's, uh, what was it? It's, I know it's better odds than what it was. What, what did I say it was, 60 to 1? No, 80 to 1 odds. That's right. The lady laughed at me at the 80 to 1 odds. So, you get, you get, so it was worth $20 originally when you bought it. Right. That's, what, that's the actual dollars you pulled out yeah, of your pocket I, I for. Yeah, I put 20 bucks on. I'm, I'm going to put the Ravens' chance to win the Super Bowl right now at about 4.5%. Okay, and that would make it worth almost 73 American dollars. So that will pay p- p- close to 10% of your fare to get down there. I, I told you, you, you want to buy it? I'll sell it right now for $73. <laughs> no, i, I got to do a little better than that. Right. The Keep Manny Fund, start that. Yeah, exactly. Go fund me. <laughs> so, all right, well, uh, everyone's got their homework. Go check out Film Study, Battle Plans, Section 336, and head on over to iTunes and write a review about Film Study with Ken McCusick. Tell your friends that you like it and help this show continue to grow as we make the playoff push just like the Ravens. Deb, been a pleasure having you today, and we hope you'll be back again real soon because uh, I think that the, the some of the listeners certainly have pointed out they appreciate the, the back and forth, and we'd love to have you on a more uh, regular basis on the show. Sounds like a plan. I think we can make that happen. So appreciate the time, and it was a fun, another fun discussion as always. And look forward to the next one. All right, talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Hey, right, bye.
Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.